0: My name is Sister Prince. Today is November 2, 1989, and I'm interviewing Joseph W. B. Clark for the Oral History Project of the Missouri Historical Society. Joseph Clark has been actively involved in the civil rights struggle in St. Louis and was president of the NAACP in the late 60s. He has served as an alderman in the 4th Ward, director of of Welfare and Director of Public Safety for the City of St. Louis. Mr. Clark, would you tell me when you were born and were you born in St. Louis? Yeah, I born in St. Louis October
1: the 30th, 1915. 1915, okay.
0: Could you tell me something about your early life? Who was in your family?
1: Oh, well, I had a sister and a mother and father and a number of cousins and aunts and uncles. But extent of my family. Where
0: did you live?
1: I was born at 1718 Good Avenue. It's now uh, Annie Malone Drive, but I was born 1718 Good Avenue.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And where did you go to school? I went to Sumner High School. I went to Simmons Elementary School, then to Sumner High School. I graduated in 1934. <clears throat> I did not return to school until about 74, and I went to uh, I in Stevens College, and I received my B.A. degree in 1978 Kay. from Stevens College.
0: Um What motivated you to go back to school?
1: Well, <coughs> I, I didn't have any idea that it was going to help me get a better job or anything, because at that time I was Director of Public Safety, and uh, at that age I never, hope to use the degree to uh, increase my earning power, as many people go back to school to do that, but what I wanted to do was to get a more liberal perspective on life. And I was encouraged to take a liberal arts uh, curriculum, and I, uh specialized in urban affairs and I uh, had been brought up in a type of environment that could make you very hostile toward white people because of the way they treated blacks I had done extensive study in what had happened to blacks in America and uh, I in my course At Stevens, I did a lot of research on what was referred to then as the black experience, which was horrible. And I had also uh, had long conversations with my grandfather, who was a slave. And he described many of the horrible things that white men did to blacks particularly black women, and what they did to many of them when they were pregnant. And with that kind of background, uh, you and then I got involved in the Civil Rights Movement, which uh, really uh, caused me to end up at one point in time with a very narrow view of this hostile white man who is not only hostile toward black, but he's hostile toward his own women. And uh, I am in the process now of doing a lot of research on how to survive in this white man's world. Because I have survived. Despite all the hostility, despite all the setbacks, and all the things that uh, black kids would like to do, we were denied the opportunity, we could go to Forest Park, but we couldn't go across Oakland to Forest Park Highlands. And this uh, had led me, uh, for I'd say a large degree, to look at this white man as something that one day God's gonna take care of him. And many of us blacks uh, sort of now Uh, smile when we say it because uh, we are now getting so close to this white man that whatever God does to him is liable to spill over on us because we are integrated and we are doing this and we are doing that. And that is what uh, led me in a large degree to seek a more liberal perspective, to uh, end up in heated discussions with uh, many people and then say, well, that's good, that's your view. This is my view, right? I have been in, I've gone to a dialogue group. Uh, I've gone to two dialogue groups, and one that uh, uh, we have real problems with is the one that meets the Jewish hospital because there are many of us Blacks today still don't understand the Jews' opposition to affirmative action, and they're insisting on confusing the issue of quotas. Quotas were used to deny Jews enrollment participation. The quotas that we are asking for are to provide opportunities. And we don't believe that the Jews, as intelligent as they are, are not purposely making that misrepresentation to themselves. I've been in lengthy discussions with men who head the the American Jewish Committee, who came here one time and talked to us.
0: Came to the hospital? Came
1: to the hospital. Uh, He was in town for me. I don't remember his name. He was in town. And uh, we uh, uh, had him as one of our guest speakers, because he happened to be, we, we meet on Thursday morning, so he's in town, so they invited him. And uh, he was defending the Jews' position, and we gave him hell. Even some of the Jews, see there were some explain Jews in that meeting.
0: Explain to me, excuse me, explain to me the position. I understand what you're saying about the quotas being put on Jews, and the for you a quota would mm-hmm. be a step ahead right. to get in to whatever you right. want to. Right. What are they saying? That there shouldn't be quotas? The, the, the,
1: yeah, should not be quotas. That, the, well,
0: how how do they well, explain that you should get your foot in the door?
1: Well, you see, their idea is, and I just talked to Mel Goldstein uh, about, about three weeks ago, and we had a very repeated argument as we opened up our season. Uh, We would say, what are we gonna talk about this year? And uh, a number of the blacks raised the question of the Jewish position in terms of providing opportunities for blacks. And they take the misguided position that in 1970, 1980, you ought to be able to apply and the best man get the job. Taking no consideration for the fact, and this is the reason we are so angry with many Jews who take that position, they don't want to take in consideration the fact that for me to be equal with you, and you have had all the opportunities except a few that they've tried to hold Jews back, but the the Jewish position in America with all the businesses they own and all the power they have. The few Jews who are hostilely treated by America, so few, but they're still saying that you ought to to give the job to the best person. No compensation for the years of deprivation and uh, we even argued. I argued with Pendleton. I don't know whether you remember him or not. Pendleton was the executive director of the Civil Rights.
0: Pendleton?
1: Pendleton. He died recently, but he was the executive of the Civil Rights Commission in Washington. And he took the position that the only blacks that, and he called his position liberal because it's different from his Jewish position. He said the only blacks who are the get any kind of compensation for being denied if they were denied. If they went somewhere and applied for a job and they were told we can't hire you because you're black or because you're a Negro, then they should be given some kind of compensation, but no other blacks. And so we have argued with him and with many that When you discriminated against my grandfather, you discriminated against me. When you limited him to work opportunities, my grandfather never went to school a day in his life. Not one day because it was against the law to educate blacks. And he was as white as you are. His father was 100% white. His mother was three-quarter white, but she was a slave. So he was raised as a slave, he was very aggressive and very, uh, I'm as good as you are, and they tried to sell him, but he couldn't sell him. And they warned his slave master down here in Fredericktown, Missouri, that if you ever bring this boy down here, you and me are going to lock you up for selling a white boy. So my grandfather was never sold, he never went to school but he could read, he could write, he could speak because he, was, he had that much in him. But what I'm saying is that what they did to my grandfather and what they did to my father affects me. Because when I finished high school, there was not 15 cents for college education. Although I finished on the honor roll and I was doing fine, but there was no money. And my father's income did not permit them to spend $19 a month to send me to Lincoln University. So, so so, our argument is that we need to be compensated for what was done to our grandfather, to our father that affected us.
0: I have uh, a few questions. What is your other discussion? Where do you have your other discussion group?
1: Uh, Civic Progress. Civic Progress. Civic Progress. Who
0: is that made up
1: of? Made up of the 35 top businesses in this area.
0: Black
1: and white? No, mainly black. black. Mainly black. Civic Progress is a private organization. They, some time ago, I have a friend of mine.
0: Excuse me, you're going to have to give me another hour after today, because if we're going to talk about this, we're not getting my agenda. and well, I'd like to talk about. Well,
1: it. I, I, you know, you asked me I why asked did i go why back you to school. Why I <laughs> went back to school? Twenty
0: minutes
1: later. So that's that's but but as a friend of mine, Al Fleischman, who's a very dear friend of mine, does not share any of these Jewish views at all, and uh, he. uh, well, public relations man for civic progress, which is a group made up of 35 anheuser Bushes, Emerson Electric, Macdonald, Santo, McMillan, Croft, and all them big companies. 35 of, them, only 35.
0: So it's black and white. No, no, It's yeah. all, black. Oh, it's all black.
1: But there are no major black corporations.
0: So these are major people in black in in white corporations.
1: No, they they just. CEOs of major corporations. Oh, CEOs are major
0: people.
1: Yeah, of major corporations. It so happens that the major corporations are all dominated by white males, and civic progress is made up of thirty-five white men, no white women. So uh, we were putting pressure on the city to pass public accommodations bills, to pass uh, fair housing, equal employment. So. He sold them on the idea that they ought to talk to a bunch of blacks to find out what the black perspectives are and what they can do
0: to help them. Can you give me, to help a, is this what year is approximately in the 60s? We've
1: been meeting. this is 25 years ago. That's the 60s. Yeah, way back in the 60s, 25 years ago. I, I went on the board of them in 1963, so this was right around 1963 mean uh, some of us were approached to how is the best way for a major corporation to find out what blacks are thinking about? Well, they had two different, three different approaches. But since I was a member of this dialogue group at Jewish Hospital with Catholics, Protestants, and blacks, I uh, suggested the dialogue. They bought it. So then we got together 15 blacks in quote leaders in the community they put together 15 members of their civic progress and we sit down and we talk we've been talking now for 20 some odd years we meet once a month second wednesday in the month and we talk about whatever comes up you know and we uh help lead to the doing away of Missouri mm-hmm. Athletic Cubs, all white, mm-hmm. all male white. Okay. So, uh, you know, those are just one of the things. We helped settle the wind strike that, that occurred here in St. Louis so many years ago. So, I don't remember the exact day. But, but, and this is not an action group. Mm-hmm. We're not there to take action. We never pass motions. Are you
0: mediators, so to speak?
1: No, we just talk. We dialogue. Well,
0: you say when you help others, you, you are more in a mediating well, type of... Well, no,
1: uh, you know, just like, you know, if you would like to know more about the blacks on a one-in-one, you talk to me. But if you say, well, I don't want to just talk to Joe Clark. I'd like to talk to 15 other people. And I say, okay, I don't want to just hear from you. I'd like for you to bring 15 white people with you. And we'll sit down and talk about all current issues. we talk about any kind of problem that's confronting St. Louis, like housing, employment. We have put pressure on civic progress to do a lot of things that they had no, I- they had no idea what to do. They came up with the National Alliance of Businessmen, and they were going to help the hardcore unemployed. The hardcore unemployed. We had to explain to them that they have cre- they had created this hardcore because a black man could go into their employment office, talk to their employment representative, and he would interview him, but never hire. Them. But now they were getting ready to go into this hardcore thing where they were going to take blacks. And bring them into the mix. So I said, "You created this hardcore. If you had employed this man 20 years ago, you had employed his father, then you you wouldn't have to now solve your conscience." And that's what a lot of white people try to do now is, uh, I, I, I I didn't do anything, but but there's a guilt on me because I'm white, but I didn't injure anybody. I didn't have any slaves. So now I'd like to do something.
0: Mr. Clark, how... So d- we
1: can go back to your subject.
0: No, 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 no. no, no I don't want to do that. Um, I just want another hour sometime. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know when, <laughs> but... Um, how do you, how do you happen to, uh... The one at Jewish Hospital is made mm-hmm. up of... I, I, think I heard you say Catholics and Protestants... And Jews and blacks. And Jews and, and blacks. Blacks. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now how do the other religions, uh, feel about a quota system?
1: well what i have found that that many whites give the silent treatment rather than to be ostracized because i've had white friends who say joe if i invited you out to my house my neighbors would want to know if I was getting ready to uh, uh, ask you to buy a house down the street. So what happens now Bishop May is a member of this group and in the middle of all this heated discussion you had about he never opened his mouth and we even tried to get him we try to say now we got all kind of people here. We got Catholics. We got Episcopalians. We got uh, here, We got everybody here. Uh, well, what are you? You know, uh, do you agree with uh, Milton and do you agree with these others who are saying that the quota system is bad and that it should never be used, regardless of what happened in the background? They don't say nothing.
0: They don't say anything.
1: Well, they don't say nothing. Or they may say, of course, you know, we're against discrimination. See, you you run into a lot of white people who say, I'm against discrimination. I say, well, are you in favor of integration? Would you want me to move next door to you?
0: There are victims, there are perpetrators, and there are bystanders.
1: Yeah, yes, there are bystanders, and that's what we have mostly in this country, are people who say, oh, that's terrible. Some black kid gets shot down. Florida with, with by a white policemen, uh, questionable circumstance, oh that's terrible. And I would never do that. But at the same time, they will not say anything about what is being perpetrated against blacks in 1989 and that is getting worse. Okay. And they will not say anything about that. I
0: just wanted to expand on that for a minute to get the other people's views also.
1: Mm-hmm. So they generally are very quiet, except there are few, in quote, radical whites, ultra liberal whites, who will speak up and catch hell. You know, they, they will speak up and they will be called nigger lovers. And they, you know, so the average white person, I don't blame them, they just want to Get up in the morning, wash their face, take a bath, eat breakfast, go to work, come back home, cut the grass, sit down. They don't want somebody knocking on the door. Or somebody, you know, the, these people out in Bridgeton right now, the, the, that, that's a real exasperating experience for them, to be trying to keep the airport from doing something out there. But that's not what they prefer doing every evening. <laughs> they don't want to come home and, and end up going to a meeting to have somebody explain that we're going to take your house. Like I heard a poor little man the other day saying, Yeah, they are gonna buy our houses but I have to move now. I wanna sell my house now. But nobody'll buy my house.
0: Mr. Clark. So I was going to ask you about segregation and what that meant to you and how it affected you.
1: Well <laughs> I, I think we've just I, I think I have discussed explained discussed that. that. <laughs> yeah, I I've explained that
0: uh but to you. But absolutely. But what um what,
1: what was happening in your home? Nothing. I had a beautiful home. I had a beautiful mother, hard working father, but uh, we very I think my mother went to eighth grade down in southern Illinois. She came up here and got married. My father came from Mobile, Alabama and he had very little opportunity down there and he ran off from home and came up here. He ran off from home. But uh, my mother is a very devout, hard, was a very devout, she's passed now, very devout, hard-working church woman. She was a Christian and she loved everybody. She looked like she was white. She could go anywhere she wanted to go and she she, she didn't have the same, very difficult to get her to participate with us in some of our demonstrations as a white person. We did a lot of things here in St. Louis to change St. Louis. We closed down the department store cafeterias one Saturday at it's
0: lunchtime.
1: Band full Fuller, square Lanham's, Barney, Ann, Famous, and Famous & Bar.
0: You said we. we.
1: This, group, this group, this group had no particular name. It was just a group of women who were tired of going downtown, spending their money, but couldn't get a bottle of soda. Bottle. They couldn't get a sandwich but they could spend, which was a lot of money, and a couple hundred dollars on some furniture. You have to go out somewhere, maybe up on Jefferson Avenue somewhere to get a Coke. You couldn't get nothing from a dime store, you couldn't get nothing. So they decided one Saturday to go down there, take a bunch of light-skinned blacks, a lot of white kids from Concordia Seminary, and a lot of white women who agreed to go down there to these stores, go in their cafeterias, sit down, order a Coke, glass of water, and a ham sandwich. A black would come in and say, I'm next to him. They'd cut the sandwich in half, Give half the sandwich to the black, give him a drink of water, or the malt, whatever it was, and they'd sit there, laugh, and talk, and eat. The store management went crazy, so they closed up one cafeteria. Then. We'd all go from that cafeteria to another cafeteria. And you were it part of
0: this? Yeah,
1: so were, uh, I, I was there, but I, I was not a woman, so I didn't no,
0: were you, what,
1: participate.
0: What age were you
1: then? I guess uh, 35, 40. Oh, okay. and, uh, we, uh, and we had the kids from Concordia Seminary outside passing out leaflets saying that this cafeteria will not serve Negroes. I they will take their money and these kids from Concordia Seminary came down here and they picketed outside until we closed that store. We closed that and we went over to the next one. We did the same thing. By 2 o'clock, all three department stores were closed. The cafeteria. The blacks who worked there said they threw away bushels of food that they couldn't save the next Monday. That they had planned for lunch. They just closed up. That was St. Louis, rather than to say, hey, let's sit down and talk about this. So finally, some people got into it, and they talked, and the department stores at that time was a lot of money. brought a public relations man, Bernays, from New York, here. Bernays?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Gave him $10,000 to tell him what to do.
0: This is still sticks?
1: All of them. I mean, they're going together to bring him here to find out what to do because this is is not good for St. Louis. You know, some of them are thinking that, but they don't know what to do except just open them up. So that's what he told them to do. He said, don't make any public announcement. Don't make any public announcement that as of, such and such a date. And so for that $10,000, he told them just when any, any black comes in, Only thing you can do at this point. You don't need a public announcement that we have been a bunch of bastards, but now we're going to be good guys. Just do it. Very little bit was ever said. There was one little article in one of the papers. I don't know whether it was the Star or the Post that said that. uh, Uh. And that's the way that was handled. I'm going to just look for a book and put this up.
0: Um, All right, so when, when was, when, were you involved in, uh, been a
1: member I remember the NAACP since the thirties. Since the thirties. Since the thirties. I was uh, a young man, and... like I said, when I finished high school, and uh, shortly after that, uh, we got involved in picketing the theaters who would, would take our money but would not hire any of us as projectionists. They'd hire us as ticket takers, ushers, but not the projectionists making big money, $75 a week, ticket takers making $15, 20 but they wouldn't hire us. So we picketed the theaters, we closed them up, and, we, and then that got the attention of the adults in the community. Pardon me, and then the NAACP came in and they tried to mediate the situation. Well, we finally got black projectionist. That happened in 1937 when I started working in the post office and just got married. And the postmaster, assistant postmaster called me in and told me that, do you know what you're doing down there is a possibility that uh, you could get in trouble and you could. I said, listen, his name was Patrick Walsh. I said, Mr. Walsh. I'm working for the post office now, making $0.65 cents an hour, I work three or four hours a day, sometimes five hours. And if what I'm doing down there is going to affect his job, you can have it. He's almost, he's almost I'm not giving I'm not, I'm not a job or anything, but I'm just saying you could get arrested. And I said, well, can post office employees get arrested for protesting against evil? Well, he said, well, I am you Well, he never bothered me anymore, but I'm just saying that happened early. Uh,
0: you have done an awful lot of things. You have fought for civil rights. You've been in that struggle for, as you said, practically, I guess, all your...
1: Well, I say at least my adult life.
0: Yes, your adult life. And um, you have been uh, president of the NACP and director of public safety. <laughs> Director of the Welfare and Alderman, you've been involved in freedom of residence. Right. right. Um, and also and
1: we did some, uh, I was a member of the PIC, which is a Presbyterian Interracial Council.
0: Okay, I've got a question. Okay. I mean, I'm, le- I'm leading up. Okay. Um, you ha- have a lot of activity that you've done. You've turned all this into trying to do something good. All the feelings that you right. have.
1: To make this a better place.
0: Right. It, you could have very easily have not...
1: Oh, Easiest thing in a row.
0: Tell me how you did that. And
1: well, I, I was just uh, like I said going back into my oh. many stories my grandfather told me. And mm-hmm. I, I had experienced some advances like a big deal and they made them take, take our pictures off of the post office.
0: I, I want to go into that in a little bit more detail
1: but go yeah. ahead. But, but, but I'm saying that uh, that has been my motivation all the time was that, well see I'm a devout Christian too. The good Lord put us here. He says there should be no difference, that there should be no respect of person and that uh, anybody who does this, uh, they uh, would have had a heart of getting into heaven and then putting a, uh, something through the eye of a needle. That if you don't like your brother, how are you gonna like me who you never seen, you know? And all these kind of things.
0: So your motivation been, to do this was the church?
1: The church was one of my strongest motivating forces, plus the fact fair play. I never hated anybody because of what they did to us. When we would go somewhere and they wouldn't let us in, I didn't say I would give me a brick and throw a brick through that. That was never my thought. My thought was that this person's got a problem. And I was always nonviolent. I never had any violent thoughts about what I need to do is do this and do that. I thought was that this, one day is gonna be a better world.
0: Did your grandfather give you any advice or feeling about- no. how, how to go about your life, besides explaining no. this background? My
1: grandfather died in 1927. 1927, I was 12 years old. But he had talked to us about what his experiences were. Okay, great, Thank you. Uh, how they would steal stuff from them Mm -hmm. and how the white people were so dumb when they got through using flour they would smooth it off nice and smooth the people working in the kitchen would go in and steal half of the flour and then leave it nice and smooth and then they would steal flour they would steal sugar they would steal whatever they could get out of the house they would leave little things on the doorknob. So if he turned the knob, they'd fall off, but they'd fall off these they pick them up and put them back. And how they did all these things to survive. Mm-hmm. And, but like I said, and, and the way he said they treated, take a pregnant black woman and just beat her on her stomach until she passes out and later on dies. And, and and look, you know, just, he saw that. And, uh, but he was a preacher although he was a very successful farmer, <clears throat> amassed a little fortune. But he saw, he, that's what they did as young people to get even with these whites who were mistreating the black women and mistreating their mother who worked in the kitchen. And he told us how many of the mulatto babies that they wanted to allege that a white man had a relationship with a black woman these mulatto babies came out the house the black, the white women were calling the white men in mm-hmm. there and when they'd have a baby they'd send the baby outside and they'd have to raise the baby but after they got all mixed up and nobody knew whose baby was what uh, they, they, this is just some black woman that had a baby mm-hmm. you know, but, you know but those are the kind of things that he uh, described to us and that along with my church And along with my desire to make as much out of my life as I could and to not be uh, let this discrimination, it took me 11 years to to get my plumbing license. I should have been able to get it in about four. But I I found an old Irish white man who vouched for my training and he helped me get my license. It took me 11 years when it should have taken me, I should have been, they wouldn't let us in the union, we had to fight the union. We filed suits against the union. Uh, As president of the NAACP, we filed a suit against the fire department. When the suit- For jobs. When the suit was finally settled, I was director of public safety. I was in charge of the fire department. Oh, these white firemen got so mad. They went to the mayor and said, he's the one. That did that, and the mayor said, "Well, that was right." He finally had to tell these white farmers, "I don't want to see you no more."
0: I've got some. I've got some questions for okay. you. Okay. I, I got
1: a little more time. Go ahead.
0: Well, I'll have to let him come back. <laughs> um, uh, during the '60s, during the '60s, who, who were the, the leaders, and were they the leaders, or were they perceived as leaders?
1: In the black community, well, I would suggest that uh, the head of the NAACP, many of the black ministers, there was very little, in quote, leadership back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. That there was, I mean, where you gonna lead? Where you gonna lead them? You can't get anything, you can't get them in jobs, you can't get them into, uh, and there were many blacks, for example, we fought in the post office, to be able to eat anywhere in the cafeteria, mm-hmm. we finally won that battle, we won that battle, but there were many older blacks, who still wanted to sit in the
0: back. Was this in the
1: 50s? no, 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 no. no. This was in the 40s. 40s, this was in the early 40s. Mm-hmm. And the, the,
0: the older blacks still wanted to...
1: Stay in the back. And they, well, you know, they were all together having fun. And uh, but, but we fought to be able to sit anywhere in that cafeteria. We wanted you fight We wanted to fight, to sit, to, live any, to sit anywhere in that cafeteria. They had a bunch of tables up in front that was just for women was nothing but white women. They never hired any black women. The postmaster declared that he would never see a black sitting up there with white women. That he would never see that. Thank God he never did see it. Because when that order was passed by the postmaster general, he was in Memphis at a conference, fell, broke his leg, and died. He never saw when that order came out, and we all moved up to the front, across that front front row, we sit in that front row. Some of them sit in the second row. Postmaster Rufus Jackson never saw it because he died. So, you know, those were the kind of things. And no blacks got good jobs in the post office. It was just, everything was against blacks in the 30s and the 40s. Tell me um, the story about
0: getting people
1: the names, pictures off of the application? Well, that was, it was thought that, uh, you see, here's what happened in the post office. For many years, you would select one out of three.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. You take the three top people, well, one black, two whites, they picked a white. So in many instances that happened, now there were some places where this most prejudiced white postmaster here, Rufus Jackson, declared when he become postmaster that he's going to take them off the list. Don't get what color they were. But he, he came from Mexico, Missouri, and, and he was against black. But he said anybody who ends up number one is going to be appointed first. And he went right down the line, which was different than any experience the post office employees had had in the past. One out of three. We had the same thing in the city of St. Louis. One out of three. That's the civil service's way of discriminating. If somebody, you apply, somebody else applies and, and they don't like the way you look or something, they, they pass you up, although you've got the best grade. That, that was insignificant except to be among the first three.
0: So you got them
1: to now, take it. No, I didn't. I mean, th- that was a national effort by the NAACP, by the Urban League, by a lot of people all across this country. Because see, that happened in Washington. Mm -hmm. That didn't happen in St. Louis. Pictures were taken off of all federal applications and they are offered there today.
0: So it got done.
1: Yeah, that that, that was a national effort. It wasn't a St. Louis effort. It was all over this country. And every department, post offices, uh, whatever.
0: How did um how did the groups, like the Urban League and ACP and CORE, and, uh, and then in the 60s you had uh, the yeah, Black, 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 Black Liberation. Yeah, mm-hmm. How did that, in um, action, how, how did those yeah. groups work together? Did they work
1: together? No. They didn't work together. They work for the same thing.
0: For the same things. Right.
1: But they had different. For example, one day we were in the Bell Telephone Building mm-hmm. talking to a Mr. Shockley, who was the head of the telephone company, about jobs for blacks. Percy Green was outside with a paint can spraying paint on the Bell Telephone Building, mm-hmm. and and the folks in the meeting thought that we. I said no, we had nothing. We, 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 you know, you know, Percy Green's got his own uh way of doing things, but we're up here trying to get jobs. Well, I would say that Percy Green out there, that paint helped us. He helped you? He helped us. Tell well, me. he helped the movement.
0: Mm-hmm. How did he do this? Well, you know,
1: if somebody comes out to your house and starts painting, spray paint on your house, and they're asking you for a piece of bread, you give them a piece of bread to get them and the paint to leave.
0: So it took a little bit from everybody. And Percy, Gre- and Percy
1: Green and his fellow that just died here, Ivory Perry, mm-hmm. they used to lay down in the middle of the street, 5 o'clock in the afternoon, they'd go out in the middle of Seventh and Pine and just lay down in the street and say, we are not traffic, talk to traffic, because of the way they treated blacks. We didn't do that. NAACP didn't do that. We, we did other things. We picketed. But I'm saying, and all these different groups developed different approaches. Not anywhere, now many of the whites thought that somewhere there was a conglomerate of releasers getting together and say, you throw the brick, you sing, you walk, you talk.
0: No. Now, I, I would have thought maybe no. that some of the people in the NAACP would not maybe have liked what Percy Green did, but no, they same, didn't. But, but could they? Like you realized that it was helping, even though they oh, didn't like it. We or had a, I guess everybody
1: had a different. Yeah, everybody in their organization. For example, our organization is a national organization. We have a national perspective, which we cannot violate. Urban leagues got a different approach. Then, when they outlawed. NAACP in the South. We started CORE as a way blacks could identify. Then CORE. Were
0: you involved in
1: CORE? No, no. No, then CORE, as we did it to give a place for blacks to have some identity, CORE developed its own leadership who thought that the NAACP was too passive and you got to sit down at a cafeteria, you got to have kids marching, you got to have droves of people doing things. That was a little different from the NAACP's approach where we talked to the congressmen, we talked to the senators, and we talked to business people and got very little done, but we were still talking to them. Uh, Occasionally, when one of these other groups would rear up, we would see a difference in their approach and their attitudes, but we didn't say that, uh, you see what he's doing? Now do do you want us to do that? We never did that. It it, it was really a very cordial kind of disagreement, but that we're all in this fight together. We're all in this fight together, just like I know you Jewish. There's different kind of Jewish groups. Some of them hate what some of these little uh, inca are doing. Uh, They're hostile, they're ready to shoot people, they're ready to, you know. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you don't get out to criticize them because, really, your criticism, any evidence you got is going against the people who are hurting everybody.
0: Comment on the fact that uh, oh, maybe somebody like Evelyn Roberts was not in favor of the Jeff Bank protest and Jefferson Bank in '63.
1: And well, but that was a new innovation that you go into a bank, stay in there. NAACP didn't do that. See. And there were a lot of people who thought that that's gonna hurt us. There's a lot of people who thought that that was gonna hurt us. To go in there, get all these people locked up, when you could do the same thing on the outside. Just walk around on the outside and, and carry your signs and accomplish the same thing. But, like I said, there are a lot of blacks, even today, who feel that there are a lot of things that have been done. They don't like Faircon and the way he blasts everybody. And the Muslims, as we were coming along, they had a theory that all white people were evil, that they were devils. We never thought that way. So you know, but we didn't go out and jump on the Muslims. Because our limited energy was attacking the hostile whites who were discriminating against us. This man's got different approach. I throw a brick and hit you. You may do something. Hit this person. Do something different. So you, your animosity should not be turned on the person over here, mm-hmm. but should be on the person who's throwing the brick.
0: Did you find that your jobs or your your um the job that you had, like, well, whether it was aldermen or city jobs, the jobs for the city, um, did that clash with any of your civil rights? I mean, you alleged to that as far as the um, post well, office, you know, but that was when you were younger and yeah, not, you could, not such a but, but, uh, prominent figure.
1: When I was appointed Director of Public Safety, mm-hmm. I had to resign as President of the NAACP. I had to resign because that's against your policy. You can be elected to a position, but when you are appointed, when you are appointed, Mm -hmm. they feel that puts you in a compromising position because now you have been appointed. This man could snatch that appointment away from you if you said that he's wrong Mm -hmm. about what he's doing. So uh, they uh, had a requirement that any time any NAACP president, now not any worker, but in time NAACP president, who is their leader in this community, gets appointed by the governor, the mayor, or the president, or anybody. He has to give up his presidency, not his membership. So in 1973, when I was appointed director of public safety, I had to give up my role as president of the NAACP. So that well, that's a conflict, and not, not. they don't want it to be a conflict.
0: Yeah. So, so that was you got out of any conflicts by doing
1: that. Yeah, by resigning. But I still stayed a member, still stayed active, and did everything and I you could. could.
0: Do the things that you. Yeah, but, but I, to I just do. wasn't.
1: When somebody would see, when I was president, they'd call you up and say, "Mr. Clark, what do you think about this?"
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But when you're not president, they don't call you up. Um.
0: You once said to me over the phone. Uh, that the World War II had an influence on the blacks in this country because after the war people were talking about getting along yeah
1: I would say that after World War II there was a a difference in the minds of some white people that these boys have been over there fighting bring them back let's welcome them they went over there fighting for our country, and and I don't know whether you know how what a big a fight they had to put up to get to fight. Yes, I do.
0: They yeah. had to fight to fight, right to fight to
1: fight not to build bridges and to dig ditches, but they wanted to fight. They wanted to be a part of the infantry. I have
0: talked
1: to a number yeah. of Tuskegee airmen, right. and, and, and they were airmen who who. Uh, I had a chance to fly down Tuskegee, a friend of mine, Wendell Carruth, got killed down there uh, doing some, some exercises. Okay.
0: Um, wait a minute. All right. um, were you president of the NAACP when Martin Luther came down? It was, it was 68 to 69? I, I, I think, uh,
1: I'm pretty sure I was. I'm pretty. I know I was an alderman, and I know I was uh, I was president until 1973.
0: Now, would you comment on St. Louis at that particular time and how it affected it, and, and how St. Louis mm-hmm. mm-hmm. reacted to his death in the March?
1: Oh, the, the, they were upset. I mean, the uh, people cried in the street, and they. I, I walked into the board of aldermen that day, and. The, secretary of the legislative research director was at her desk crying. I said, what's the matter, family? He said, you haven't heard? I said, no, I haven't heard. They shot Martin Luther King and they don't expect him to live. That was the news that had c- c- come on the radio. And I said, no, I- I've been out and I haven't been near radio all day. So that was generally the uh, see Martin Luther King had come here a number of times to make speeches and uh, everybody uh, thought that he was God's gift to America, the way he could talk and the influence he had and the way he could calm things down and and, you know it was just that uh, they all, many of them felt that the battle was over when Martin Luther King backed. Uh, the, the approach that we had developed of nonviolence and, and the way he could talk to the president and go across this country and talk and win the uh, Nobel Prize, Peace Prize is that he was just it. And to lose him was like losing the battle. That's what many of them thought. Uh, it could
0: have been a time for riots in St. Louis.
1: No, but but we we didn't have that. Oh, we uh, had people come here and approach us. Not as his death, but during the early rides in California and Detroit.
0: People approach you?
1: Oh yeah, approached us and wanted yeah. us to burn some buildings. And we tried to tell them that above those buildings that are owned by whites, they're blacks and if we would even think about burning that store downstairs to protest something, that we got blacks out there home and we're not going to do that, get out of here. And we ran them out of here. We told them, "Uh uh-uh. We don't need that. We have our own approach here, maybe conservative to some degree, but we got core here, we got all the black organizations and we are not ready. To start a fire.
0: When you when you say we you're speaking of yourself and I'm other talking about leaders. Like the general
1: leadership mm-hmm. in Saint Louis. What
0: what when, what were you at that particular time? I think
1: I may have been just an all of them. I'm not sure. I'm not okay. sure. I don't remember uh, when the ride was in in Los
0: Angeles. Mm-hmm. So Saint Louis, uh, Maybe
1: it was too smart for them? Well, we think so. <laughs> and, we, and, and we think that we had uh, some civil rights groups and we had uh, like Al Fleisman and we had a few other people around here who were making a few things happen here and there very quietly. And, uh, well, what gets,
0: did he do quietly? I've heard that so much. What was it that he was able to do quietly? Well, have you ever
1: met him? Yes, I know I Okay, heard. well, you know, he is a convincing person mm-hmm. and a sincere person. Mm-hmm. And, he, and, and he's a truthful person. He's not going to lie to you to try to make a point. He's not going to build something mm-hmm. up or tear it. He's going to tell it to you just like it is. Mm-hmm. And he had a lot of influence. He talked to Augie Bush on a first name basis we talked to him once about he said joey anything else we can do down to to, to, the we let blacks in now i said well do you ever think about hiring a black groundskeeper he said no i never thought about that i said how about hiring some ladies to wipe off the seats You, you hire one or two ball players fine and you let Black City know where they can spend their money. But how about giving them some money? You know, and, and Al took a leadership on that. He went to Bush and told him, we've got to do this, we've got to do that. So, Al is to this day a unique person who, uh, you know he has problems with the Jewish community because he's a strong advocate of Israel. You know, he's a Zionist from the get-go. So what kind? Of, what does that? Well, you know there, there are a lot of people that, that 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 don't believe in Zionism. Now you you ought to know that better than I do.
0: Yeah, I just wasn't aware that he had problems in the Jewish community well, what because I'm of sa- his leanings. I, but I'm not. Well, well,
1: well, 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 what I'm saying.
0: Involved
1: in. It. Not problems in terms of get out of my face, Al. Mm-hmm. But just that there are a lot of people.
0: Well, I, I who, excuse me, I was just on a sit on at a board meeting with him where, mm-hmm. he, where there are many people
1: who are interested in, in a uni- Hebrew University uh-huh. which he is and which oh, yeah. they that there is no question that Al has done a lot of wonderful things but I'm saying there are some people who feel that he is too much in favor of Israel now for example when Israel started some program just here recently, Al disagreed with him, mm-hmm. And he told them that you're crazy. Which was so unique for Al to disagree with something going on in Israel. Mm-hmm. Because he has been such a strong supporter of Israel. That this is what we need. We need Israel. They can do no wrong. Now there are a lot of people don't buy that. Yes,
0: there
1: are a lot of people who like you. But they're not going to say, well, sister can't do no wrong. But but if you but I wish. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm saying but if you always took the attitude that whatever I do is right, whatever you do is wrong, then you could create a problem. That people still come to you, they eat dinner with you, laugh and talk with you. But if you start pushing something too strong, they'll back up off of you and they're busy. I I I know you're
0: they're not give me a lot of time, so I want to No, because push when you this goes time. off, I'm gonna. Well, no, no, no. You have to give me five more, ten more minutes. But well, you are. You are. You're being very <laughs> yeah, fair. Yeah, I, okay. What about being? You You ran for the uh, uh, president of the board of Aldermen.
1: Yeah. And uh, I ran twice. You ran twice.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But that was a. Uh, uh, I'd say that was a symbolic mm-hmm. kind of running. I, I was trying to say to the city of St. Louis that on this powerful body. I know you white people ain't going to do it, but, but on this powerful body, with this community being 40-some-odd percent black, there ought to be a black person helping make fiscal policy for the city of St. Louis. And, and that's what I was trying to say. Mm-hmm. I had no illusions that I was going to be elected.
0: you making a statement.
1: No, not in St. Louis, but what... I was just trying to say, and many others who supported me were just trying to say to this great big city that you ought to be liberal enough to agree that a black, see at one time there was not one black citywide elected official, not one, because the whites wouldn't vote for him. That's the kind of town that we had here. Um, so the uh, Director of Public Safety
0: was... Appointed, and all right. So, if we have just a few minutes left, what do you feel that you'd like to comment on? That maybe where you feel you now. What are you doing now? I I am
1: president of the Self Help Housing Corporation. What
0: is the Self Help Housing? Self
1: Help Housing Corporation is a not-for-profit corporation that has a two-pronged program. One is to train street young men off the street with limited or no skills, maybe a high school education, into the building crafts, all of them, concrete finishing, bricklaying, carpentry, tuck pointing, any phase of the building, We, we, we train them. And we also have trained about 600 homeowners and tenants as to how they can fix up their own property rather than let it fall down. And I'm now on KMOX radio every Saturday about 6:25, giving helpful hints to uh, anybody who listens. So that's what I'm doing right now. And we have built three brand new houses from the ground up. We have uh, rehabbed about six, eight. We eight houses, and we now getting ready to do a 12 bedroom, four bath unit and give it to the homeless program. That's what Self-Help Housing Corporation is all about.
0: Would you like to, I'm not going to put on this and I think we, do you feel it, is there anything you'd like to?
1: No, I, I, I think that I have uh, said to you just about everything that I, I would, would, would want to say. Uh, I am uh, still very much concerned about America, about what's happening in America, and how it is adversely affecting everybody in this country. Uh, I noticed that we were getting all upset because the Japanese are buying our property. Charles Osgood said this morning, "Well, you know, they can only buy it if we sell it. But I'm saying, if you just <laughs> notice, America is getting all upset right now because not only, but the Arabs are coming in here buying things, and and uh, because America doesn't know what this is gonna, what this is gonna lead to, that maybe someday." some of these owners of our property will say together we are going to run your government we're not going to do this so uh, we're not going to pay taxes to america until you do this so i'm saying that what america has done to us black americans i still say one day they do going to pay for And I don't know how, and I'm not going to have anything to say about how they pay for it. But they are paying for it right now with our national debt. It's unbelievable that we, a great big country like America, would end up with the billions of dollars of debt that we
0: cannot pay. I got a quick question. What do you think of the black leadership
1: today? The black leadership today you may not like this, but the black leadership today is equal to the white leadership. Good. I'm
0: glad, I'm glad
1: you feel that way. Yeah, it's equal. Because the white leadership, they don't know where they're going. They don't know what to do. They're so upset with each other. They, they'd rather fight about abortion. They, they want to fight about the airport. And I still say that Our leadership may not be as flamboyant as it was when Martin Luther King lived, but our leadership today equals, I'm not going to say we're superior, but there are blacks who I call black racists who believe that blacks are superior to whites because whites never could have done what many blacks have done under the same conditions. And I hear them tell me all the time, we're superior. Because if the white man had somebody on his throat, like they had been on ours, they would have jumped out more windows, jumped off of bridges, because they can't take it. But we can, so we are superior. I don't buy that. I say that we're equal. And that our leadership today is equal. But look what we had for president.
0: You know, I know, going say being equal with our leadership today is not such a god. But, but, but what
1: I'm saying, we, we are equal to it. You, you look at Reagan and you look at Bush. You look at Quayle. And this is the top leadership in America.
0: But we put them
1: there. Yeah. Well, that and tells what you something say, about us.
0: What does that say about us? It
1: says something about us. Okay. Right, thank well,
0: you, Mr. Clark.
1: And, uh, I appreciate it. I, I, I don't know what you've gotten that you can use, but I've tried to be as honest.